Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome back to another episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and today I am joined by Daniel Gandarilla. And Daniel is the Chief Learning Officer at Texas Health Resources, the largest faith-based nonprofit health system in the United States with a team of more than 25,000 employees. Texas Health has won numerous awards for being a great place to work. And as CLO, Daniel is the Overseas Strategic Oversight of Leadership and Management Development Programs and Initiatives, Clinical and Business Education Programs and Initiatives, Continuing Medical Education, Medical Libraries, and Other System Education and Training Initiatives provided by Texas Health Resources University. Daniel was recently featured on the cover of Chief Learning Officer Magazine for transforming the learning culture, tearing down silos, and saving millions of dollars in the process, which I can't wait to get into. And he has a BA and Master's from Stanford and an MBA from Texas Christian's MJ Neely School of Business. Daniel, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much. And that was such a wonderful introduction. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> ah, you're welcome. You know, I like to do a little bit of my homework before, uh, before I get on with someone and you have uh, an impressive background. And uh, one of the things that I was actually most impressed with, you know, beyond education and some of the different things you've done is how you seem to have moved up pretty fast at such a large organization in Texas Health. But before we even get to that, uh, I was also reading a little bit of your background and saw that uh, at some point in time, you were teaching Spanish to uh, executives in Mexico. Is that right? Yeah, that was uh, my first gig out, out of school having graduated. I, I was kind of like, well, I just been through all this stuff and I have sort of a, an adventurous streak I want to tap into. So I said, well, let me go, let me go down there. I said, I got to pick a large city. I want to live in a really big urban environment. You know, went down there, no friends, anything like that. Just found a place, got a job, found the gig, and spent spent a year down there. And it was such a worthwhile experience. You know, that making friends, but also learning a lot about myself. Mm, okay, and so that and that was in Mexico. And did you uh, already speak Spanish going in, going down there? Yeah, I had I had some fluency, but you know, uh, I could hang out with people and chat with them. But it, it was um, 
is a whole nother experience when you got to live it 24 seven and you're not really sure what certain things are, are called and, you know, in slang or whatever. So it becomes a, quite an adventure where again, you, you learn a lot about yourself, right. Um, which is probably more important than anything else. Yeah, I can relate a little bit. I mean, what you did is even more adventurous. But after college, my wife and I, then girlfriend, now wife and I moved from Florida out to Los Angeles with basically no connections, no jobs and no money. And uh, we were extremely overwhelmed. We moved from this small town in Florida to you know, the city of 8 million or however many people are in LA with the crazy traffic and all the stuff going on. Uh, very different culture and a huge learning curve, but it was quite an adventure. And you learn a lot in those moments and it ended up working out for both of us. Yep, exactly right. I mean, same, same thing. Very similar. Yep. Cool. So how did you go from there to, to getting into doing what you're, you're doing now, getting into learning at Texas Health? Well, so after, after that, after being a, um, I guess it was a Spanish or an English teacher in, in Mexico, I basically came back to the, to the U.S. I taught high school. I also ran the student uh, leadership program in South San Francisco. So I was there, spent a lot of time um, with these kids, really finding out that, yeah, you know what I really enjoyed more, more so than anything was helping people to develop, not necessarily even you know, the, the subject matter, because I did teach history, psychology, I had government econ, but the thing that was most important to me was sort of the, the human being and how they were progressing and what they wanted to do. So I decided at that time, my, my wife or my fiance and I had we'd been engaged and we decided we were ready to make a career change. And uh, we moved here to, to DFW, where we currently are now. And in that process, started pursuing my MBA and my doctorate in educational leadership. So I'm, I'm ABD on that, right? So I've I basically, after this podcast, I will then turn around and continue to, to try to crunch some of that, that document out there so I can finish my dissertation. Nice. I think that's my Friday afternoon activity. So in, in school, I started pursuing you know, just some business administration, education, all that stuff, and learned about chief learning officers at that point. Since uh, I had some exposure to management education and people started talking to me about it, and I realized there was an opportunity to, to synergize um, my my background with my interest and with the degree and all that. And so I started looking into it and lo and behold, found out more about it. Had a, I was able to get the chief learning officer from Coca-Cola at the time on the phone to chat with me about, about just expressing this interest. And I then ended up at Procter & Gamble doing my internship for my MBA. And when I came back, I gave a presentation about some of the activities I had done to the chief learning officer at Texas Health. And he told me to come join. And he did and just kind of worked my way up. The rest is history. Oh, that's fantastic. And it just reinforces advice that I give people all the time, which is networking is so important. Reach out to people, ask questions. Most people want to help. Uh, I did the same thing when I was in business school. The only problem for me was I wasn't as focused on what I wanted to do. And so I would reach out to a lot of alumni to do informational interviews and, and everybody would say yes. And I would get all of this great information, but then they didn't know how to help me because I didn't know where I wanted to go with my career. But things worked out in the end and it sounds like it worked out well for you. The interesting thing is you got hired by the chief learning officer and you joined Texas Health and now you are the chief learning officer. So and it happened pretty fast. So tell me that story. Yeah. So it was um, just a matter of me getting in and started doing work. And you know, one of the, the things that I always emphasize is you, know, you got to build those relationships when you're in, in the organization. And right away, you know, I just started talking to different folks, finding out what their needs were 
trying to figure out resources that currently existed or serving as a, a vehicle to connect people. And just through that capacity, you know, I, I always try to do the job that's above, above you. So I was a manager and I was doing, trying to do my director's job so he could free up, right? So you can get everyone up, work into the high, higher level. So as I did that, I just continued to, I guess, own the, the role above me to the point that I was doing the work. And then when that director left, it was a no-brainer that I was the, the person to put into that position. And then you know, I, there was another chief learning officer at the time. She came in and I basically worked um, to try to help her do her role as best as possible. So I was doing some of the activities that might have normally been done by the chief learning officer, but um, I was the director at the time and you know just kept kept working at it. And then when she left, I had basically it was a no-brainer that I would be I would be in that position. So it was always, you know, the, my philosophy has always been to try to again help the person above by saying, what what can I do that would help you? Yeah. And even if it's a part of their role so it can free them up to do other things, then that's what you do. And if that's the work you do, it just becomes natural that you're the the next person to fill in the, any given duty. Yeah, I like that advice. And it sounds like it works very well for you to always be thinking about how do you do the job above you so that you're essentially prepared and it becomes almost a no-brainer when that job opens up. So are you doing the, the CHRO job now so that you're ready to go when that, that role opens? So I, I am trying my best to help out as much as possible. This is at the point at which it becomes a little bit more difficult because there's some expertise I think that's needed sometimes, but I am, you know, I still offer whatever I can. I mean, whatever it is that's needed to be done, I will do. Although I've now in this role that I've been in, we've been through a centralization in the past three years, and then we've been continuing to add different functions. So more recently in the past 18 months, we added in our continuing medical education and medical library. So I've been doing more work at the current level than uh, I usually will because I do try to free myself up to do some work above. But it's just been a matter of, you know, there's a lot of work going on at Texas Health. So I, I, I would like to continue to work on freeing up some time to, to support our chief people officer. But uh, I've been just through a lot of process improvement right now, really focusing on integrating a few teams together. So not as much as I like to, but there's a lot of work going on that's really sure. interesting. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Speaking of that work, I want to dig into some of the work that you have been doing there as the chief learning officer. And as I mentioned, uh, you were featured in Chief Learning Officer Magazine, which is uh, on the cover. You know, really awesome to see that. And you know, it was all about how you transformed the learning culture and really tore down silos. So tell me more about what you did there and how have you gone about transforming the learning culture? 
So yeah, this has been not just in the past three years, but the entire time I've, I've been here has really been trying to bring people together. And I, I know that you probably have people listening to your podcast that are from outside of healthcare. But for those that are within healthcare um, or want to learn more about it, you just think about when you go into a, a healthcare organization or when you, you know, walk into a hospital, just think about how many specialties and subspecialties exist, right? Within nursing, you've got med surge nursing, you have critical care, emergency, OR, labor and delivery. And then within there, there's some specialties as well. And then you start going out and going, well, then there's pharmacy, and then there's lab, and then there's physical therapy. And you can just start going. Because of this, it really involves having to bring a lot of people together in order to understand how to best serve the patient or the consumer. So having to bring those folks together often takes a lot longer than you really want in order to do something quickly, but it gets you to a better outcome. So that's really been the work is saying, okay, look, if we're going to do this for pharmacy, does nursing need to be involved? Do physicians need to be involved? And that's really been breaking down a lot of those silos. And it's a different way of, of thinking. And we've been pushing this tremendously. So when we centralized about three years ago, we had to go through this process and that had to bring everyone together and, and coalesce us around a vision. So we put in a new leadership team um, with a vision on trying to support these hospitals collectively as opposed to just nursing, right? And reaching out to different disciplines beyond that. And it hasn't been easy, um, but we've been... You know, the thing that we've had to do more than anything is to either work and put ourselves into a work group that currently exists like a... Um, we'll call it like a cabinet. So our emergency department cabinet, which has an interprofessional team and get someone on that team or to create a work group for something like diabetes that would involve you know, various different disciplines in there and to put ourselves at the table or just create the table where we could then have a conversation about what's really needed, what is learning and what might just be communication. What's process issue versus... This is just a point of need tip sheet that needs to be there to really think through all of that so we don't continue to use an outdated model of instructor-led training that may be relevant at certain points, but not for everything. Yeah, so that goes back to what you said before about centralization and really kind of treating it more as a central business overseeing things from a business perspective versus all of these different specialties managing themselves and hopefully sometimes working together you're bringing everyone together as a business, getting people out of silos and also centralizing. It sounds like a lot of the, the learning and connecting that, the learning, the training, the development to the overall strategy versus just reacting to what those different specialties are asking for. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other things we did when I said that we created the table is we also um, crafted at the time what was the most appropriate is this learning and education cabinet. So I basically formed that with... Um, had you know our chief operating officer, chief clinical officer, chief people officer, our VP of quality, our president of the physicians group, put a collective group together to really look at what was needed for the organization and to help them define the strategy they wanted for us to take and also to point us into the direction of where we should go. So when I mentioned those, those teams that we were put on, well, they basically were identified through that group as a place that we should go to. Right, so we use them to help to help guide us and point us. And um, one of the cool exercises that we did was we 
we used some Deloitte literature um, that said that if you know like the modern learner, I'm sure you've seen that graphic, Deloitte, the modern learner, it says you can dedicate about 1% of your time to, to learning in a given work week, which, you know, we extrapolate out, you say that's about 21 hours a year. So I gave them 21 poker chips and I asked them to sort these poker chips around, around four categories of drivers for education, whether it was related to strategy or performance improvement or regulatory requirements or just an individual's own interest. And they were able to provide back to me sort of a framework for where they thought collectively we should be, or individuals should be spending their time. And obviously, when you look at it in healthcare, because we're highly regulated, where we're spending our time on this regulatory compliance isn't where our executives really want our time focused. So we've been on a mission for the past two years to reduce time spent in required learning where we can. Like where there's not a regulation that says you must have eight hours, we are trying to get it down to what's most important. That way we can spend more time on things like performance improvement or our strategic initiatives, right? So we're trying to balance that out without just increasing cost and time and knowing that there's only so many hours in a day that someone can learn. Yeah, there's only so many hours in a day for us to do anything, including learning. And people will, might say they want to learn, but then it's it's always hard to get around to that. It'll get put off. Yep. Uh, although, you know, we do see that the data shows that people more and more want that learning. They want development more than maybe previous generations said that they did. It, it's scoring higher in those surveys. So you've got to be able to find a way to provide those opportunities. Uh, but you're also trying to streamline that process. I saw in that article I read that uh, you refer to yourself as the chief time officer. Yeah, yeah. So why is that? that? That's in reference to exactly what we did there. It's like, I, I basically am allocating, I'll call it share of mind, <laughs> is that we, if we say that there's 21 hours um, that anyone can dedicate in a given year to their own development. And I, and I say dedicate, we know we go above that, but if we want people dedicated to that, then we need to know this is how much time is being spent on all of these regulatory type of things that's eating up our ability to move into performance improvement or strategic learning. So that then becomes a conversation where we say, hey, look, we know, right? You know um, that people just click through some things. So why do we create an experience that eats up their time with them clicking? Let them read it at their own pace and you know what? They've read it probably 10 times, depending on what it is. Let's, let's change that experience. And we want them focused on how they can improve on their unit. So um, the other thing we, we can look at is when in a regulatory requirement, can we just focus on the things that we're going to do for improvement and to count that for that? So we're, we're trying all different things, but uh, yeah, we're, we're like the time enforcement police a lot of times where it's like, well, look, it's, we're already, the bucket's overflowing on time. We're asking for people to be trained you need to think about a different way of doing this. Or we need to say, like sometimes with quality, and I've told them this before, is let's swap in and out, right? You don't need to do this training every year. So take that one out for this year and next year, and we can put it back in in a couple of years and put something else in, in that place. So we can really just keep in front of these people what, you know, what's the impact on the frontline learner. Yeah, and it's, uh, it sounds like you're, you're highly aware of where people are spending their time and whether it's a good use of their time or it's a waste of their time. And you want to make sure that what, you know, if you put training in front of them, that it's a good use of their time, uh, especially knowing that they only have, you know, a certain number of hours to give. I like the, the metaphor and using the poker chip. So people really like it's tangible, the number of hours that are available. I also gather from, 
you know, looking at your background and your profile, that you are a very strategic thinker. And that's another reason probably why you got to this role so quickly. I think one of the challenges or, or problems out there is that a lot of people in learning roles get reactive and say, oh, someone requested this kind of training or this kind of learning, so let's put it together when it may not necessarily fit with the overall company strategy. Can you tell me about your philosophy on making sure that your, your learning programs are connected to that company strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So we value strategy and specifically the strategic insight that needs to be brought to learning. We know that our customers, like we, you know, our customers are the people that we say are going to buy our services. And those are our, that's, that's our cabinet. And then we want everyone else to have a really good learning experience. So to make sure that it's aligned with the need of the business. So yeah, we, we do this all the time. I'll give you an example of one where, you know, the reaction was recently we had centralized our, um, the organization had centralized our PBX, or that's the call operator system. And they uncovered quite a few things in there that weren't standardized. And they wanted to come back with a, a training issue. And so the team was handling it. And they came to me and said, you know, that's not a training issue. But, you know, the, there was some, some significant concern. And so what we had found out is, well, we sat down and talked to them. Well, what's the concern? Well, we don't know if, if people are going to know who to call. And I said, well, is there a single number to call now? Yes. Well, okay, what's the number? 9999. All right. So do we need to train people on how to use a phone? No. Okay, then what is it we really need to have people do? Oh, we need them to know the number to call. Great. Do we have stickers that we could put on the phone? And lo and behold, we found out that one of the hospitals had already gone down that route and had stickers. So we were able just to circulate that and say, hey, look, let's just continue down this route and see if you can get those for everyone. But we didn't need to do anything because the time and energy it would take to even if it's create a three-point or three-slide PowerPoint, load it into the system, push it out to everyone, and then spend the time tracking and then sending reports to people on who hadn't completed it. And that amount of time, we could have put stickers on every phone and everyone would have it in front of them right. all the time. So right, that was one of those ways that we basically were able to, to deflect some of that and we got people to buy into it. It was not easy. And I would tell you, it can be very painful. Right. And people don't like it because, you know, when you're either the chief learning officer or you're a trainer or a instructional designer, you, you have to say no, or at least give them a different solution to say, well, let's, let's just get some stickers. And then, you know, your role isn't to pursue something, but to be a partner to the business at the time. And that's hard. That is really hard. And I think it's a challenge for a lot of people, that idea of moving from an order taker to a partner to the business. And when you're a partner of the business, you make sure that things fit in with that strategy. But that also means you have to say no to other people or maybe dig in and ask more questions to determine what is the actual need. So how do you go about doing that? Is that something that you struggle with or that, you know, how did you get better at doing that? Yeah, struggle all the time. So we try to basically give everyone an option to get to yes, but it's no in terms of what we need to provide, right? So we always try to get to yes. So an example, you know, could be one that recently came up is, you know, there was a request, one of these physicians is an expert in adult care and gerontology. And we've dedicated all of our resources already to these other projects. She wanted to create these own things that she would write all the content and all that. And so we gave her an option that was, well, we have a tool that's fairly easy for you to use if you can write all that script. And we could make it a self-service option for this physician to say, hey, look, I want to craft this content. 
create the content. I will own it. I will build it. I will do all this stuff. So we try to provide a way for people who are motivated to do that without needing 100% full support from us because we know that we've got resources dedicated to what we call our core products and services that we run day in and day out. You know, we're responsible for orientation, our leadership development programs, our CME, there's conferences that are put on and we know we do these things every day. So we've dedicated all of our resources to that. And then we have some additional bandwidth. But once that's tapped into by all these other projects, it becomes a matter of prioritization. And then that's where if someone wants to go about it on their own, we have a solution or we might need to go back and to reprioritize the work that's been done. But in order to do that, we need to take that over to a group that can do that. We can't do that on our own. We then say, Hey, look, here are these things and what's the priority? And that difficult choice needs to be made by whoever's commissioned the, the work. And one of the options could be, well, we'll just give you money to, to do that. And so that's the way that whoever's in one of these roles has to really think about is you've got a finite set of resources, but you can always go ask for more, but you have to be able to have that person help you make the case. And if it makes it, then you get the resource. And if not, then you don't. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so there has to be a strong business case for the thing they want to invest in. And then it could be internal resources. It could be money. Uh, now tell me about that. You have a lot, it sounds like you have several different training and development programs in place. Do you use outside partners to provide content for some of these things or do you build everything internally? Yeah, so we, we have a lot of great vendor partners that we use um, for some of our continuing education, our professional development and leadership development. We try to customize as much as as possible. And I say customize, we, we tailor it to Texas Health, right? We call it, we THRI. We make it Texas Health Resources Approved where we try to, like we're right now rolling out situational leadership for our, our leaders, but we put a wrapper around it that makes it about Texas Health. So we can buy out of the box the content, facilitate some of the content, but then we always want to connect it back to our Texas Health framework, right? So it's, it fits within the language and the way that we do things. On the clinical side, you know, we, we do tend to customize some content a little bit more, but we have different products that provide us specific processes they can use for nursing as well as CE. But we do customize some very specific process and workflow things for ourselves as well. Got it. So yeah, it sounds like a healthy mix and uh, between custom and standard and working with vendor partners and creating things in-house depending on what you're trying to do, where it fits in, what skills you, and resources you have available versus what partners you have. And I see the same thing with a lot of the clients I work with. You know, I provide really custom solutions down to you know, off-the-shelf standard type stuff. And how much do you want to invest in customizing these things to, to work for you? This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity, Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses. We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. 
We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giulioni, on developing in place how to continue your growth during remote working, and a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work, plus many more. Just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. There's one other thing I wanted to ask about, which is your education advancement program that you had to, to streamline quality and, and access to training. Does that, how does that, what does that look like? How does that fit into everything we talked about? So that was phase one of the centralization, right? So in, um, when we did that, we, what we really looked at, and this, and it was a, this was a long project. The first thing we did is we went out and we made visits to all of our different facilities and looked at what resources they currently had. And what we found, and I'm sure that it's like this in, in other large organizations, we just happen to be large in, in one metroplex on an island, is each facility had a, a little bit of a discrepancy in what was available to them with some of the smallest facilities having almost nothing. To the point that we found out in the process before we had centralized some of the design and development before we did the next phase of the, of the people, that they were going... Some of our smaller facilities were having to go to our competitors to get resources, to get some of the training that they needed. And so that was so um, disheartening that we said, okay, look, we need to take these functions and reposition what we're currently doing centrally. And again, so that moved to some of the the design and development of, of content, and then the deployment through um, the learning management system. We took that on because there were 13 different facilities doing 13 different things. And so you had these 13 catalogs and each one had a version of something and the content wasn't the same. And so we, we took that on as the first phase really to just make sure we, we ensured better access to higher quality content. And then as we then modified that, we, we learned that in the next phase that, well, we changed that and we've got it, but the people are still scattered and doing things differently. So that was the next phase of, the, of that centralization. But what we've what we really found is we've been able to reduce a significant amount of, of rework or waste, we'll call it, in, in the creating the same thing, but for a different population. And then with the potential risk that they're creating a whole different type of learning experience and module and content in there. One of the things that you talk about reframing some of the learning culture is that learning had primarily been used from a punitive standpoint, and it still is to a certain extent, is rather than use performance management and feedback and coaching, a lot of times it's easier just to say, here, do this, do this module. And so we, we know that that happened more than anything. And we're still trying to reframe that a bit because there's this lack of personal ownership of accountability and then the manager's accountability for their staff to know things that it's easier just to say, ah, do this and I've taken care of it and wipe my hands of it than to say, hey, look, as a professional, you should know this. And by the way, everybody else knows it because there haven't been any issues except in your performance. So, you know, we're going to move this through the corrective action process or whatever may need to have coaching process. But it's sort of been punitive. So we're trying to reframe all that. That's sort of this next phase of what we're doing. So we've got good partners with our with our with uh, the rest of our people and culture team from HR and risk and others to really advance that. Yeah. And I've seen it where organizations or someone's running a team might see one person that needs to get better, needs to get training on something, or they need that feedback. And because they're so afraid to provide that direct feedback, 
I'd say, well, everybody has to go through this training program now. And it's like, well, no, 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 you're wasting other people's time. They already know it. Yep. Just give direct feedback to this one person, put them on the learning program they need, tell them how they can improve because they're probably unaware. And oftentimes we don't improve unless we get the feedback we need from managers or peers, um, whether it's positive and like, here's a strength you have that you didn't even know, or it's areas for improvement, but we're not going to realize that until we get that feedback. Yeah. That's the thing is until, until all of these systems that we have can talk right through the future of what's going to happen and work in general and, and can then say, Hey, look, here's what time you arrived and here's what you did and whatever it is. And so based on that, here's what you need to learn and do until that, the only way we can customize at the individual level, what's needed is going to be through support from managers who can identify skills of the employees and where they need to work so that they can then do that. So that, that's how we get to true customization is in that conversation between the individual and the manager and with the data collectively, they can say, yeah, here's my plan for me. Right. And that's how we get unique and tailored without having all this big data quite yet that um, in the future could tell us that. But at this point, when people are like, well, why do we have to do all the same thing? Well, we have to do all the same thing because our managers haven't said, this is what you're really good at. And this is where you work and need to do. This is where you're really good at. And this is where you work. And where individuals are saying, I agree this or I disagree. What I need to do is this. When we get to there, that's when we'll have this true customization that's got input from the individual and the manager and what they've seen perform. But um, without that, to your point is, well, everyone just does it. Well, that's not, that's not the, what we're trying to get to with this sort of at the individual level, what's my need? Well, that's got to be determined by the individual and the manager. Yeah, it's so important. Uh, you know, I mentioned that there's the data that a lot of people, more and more people want the development opportunities. They want it to be personalized. They need managers to identify that stuff. But people also have to take ownership for their careers too and help identify where they have gaps, where they want to get better and what skills they want to acquire versus just saying, oh, I want a promotion. And uh, I have a partnership with a woman named Christine Donato who's been on this show in the past as a company called Career Revolution that, that works with companies to do that. And it's, it's eye-opening to see where those gaps are and those opportunities are and how much of a difference it can make when people start taking ownership of their own careers and getting specific about the skills they need versus just saying broadly, hey, I want to get promoted. How do I do that? And the managers don't know what to tell them because they're, they're not there yet. Yep, exactly. Daniel, what's been your biggest accomplishment or proudest moment so far in your career? Well, so I think we've been talking about like that centralization and that that's probably one of the biggest things. I mean, we had to, that was such a massive, a massive change that we needed to work. I mean, I was working with this large group of people, the way we did it, we engaged people, we had them look at the work they were doing while it was painful was also a, a one of the proudest moments. I think the next one that will come is around introducing some tenants of change management into the organization and, and making that a really important facet for our leaders. Um, I have been approved recently to do that. So I've been working with our, our system transformation office to basically plug that into the way that we work and then to roll that out in the future to our leaders. So the first one is sort of that's in the past and it's something that's proud, but there's also this other one on the horizon because I've been talking about change management here for the past two or three years. And it's finally with all the stuff coming to fruition. And I'm not sure that, 
you know, a lot of times people think that time horizons are short, like a training program. But when you're talking about trying to move an organization in a direction, sometimes it takes two years to get that conversation to the place it is that you can then go ahead and start advancing it. So the next one that will be my my proudest moment that might even eclipse this the education centralization and that creation of THRU was will be this change management approach because it's going to be so critical. It's sort of you, you know again this is something that will transcend industries is it's almost like if there's nothing else you can focus on, you can focus on how to how managers and leaders can move people through change and how individuals can move themselves through change. Because while it's cliche, it's the only thing that will continue to be constant. Yep. And if you can focus on that, you know, any chief learning officer or talent development, whatever it is, will will truly help to move the organization forward. So I'm I'm really excited about what's to come next. So that's sort of a what's proudest and what's coming versus what we've already done. Yeah, and the rate of change is is faster than it's ever been before, and it's also slower now than it will ever be in the future. So change is going to keep getting faster. Those needs are going to be there. Having those skills in the future are going to be so valuable for your managers, for you, uh, as you continue to advance in your career. So I like where you're going with that. Flip side, what's been your biggest failure or mistake to this point, and what did you learn from it? There have been some things that we've tried to do. So, so one of the, one of the things we originally tried to do that bombed, and it was internally primarily, but we said, look, we've got all these experts and they're all creating this training, but they're not really experts. We created a program that was called Teaching You to Fish, right? With the intent of making them better experts. And man, did that... That was... I, I had pulled the team together. They talked about it. They crafted a curriculum. They pulled people in and it bombed. And we had, you know, we had people show up to the first one. And then there was like a three-part series. And by the second one, we only had like two or three people coming. And then no one actually finished it. And so it was painful because it was it was like we need this, and it was an idea that we came up with in support of a need. But the people, it was, we had to shift their mindset first, and they weren't they weren't ready for it. A lot of them that were in there realized what they were saying was training wasn't really training, but they couldn't move away from that idea that what they started with was different. And so it was painful. It's brought up right now as a sometimes people will say, "Well, well, remember that time when we did." you know, teaching you to fish. And it's like, it's always like getting, not reopening a wound, but like pushing a wound that's still kind of (laughs) healing and it hurts a little bit, but it's one of those that you can only, I mean, you know, my my perspective on a lot of things is that you really can only learn from experience. Yep. So whatever it is that you sit through a workshop, whatever it is, it's when you go to do it that you learn. And so that was one of those learnings that even though you may need it, there's still a huge barrier in terms of trying to push the change forward and what's required and just wasn't ready for it, was underprepared for it. And so it basically it died. And now we're bringing back a second version of it through this tool that we have and trying to help support our experts. But now we're, we're working at a slower pace, but we're trying to put some infrastructure around it to, to provide help that we didn't have it last time. Yeah, it's important. And and we do learn best through experiences. That's why I'm a big fan of experiential learning. That's why you hear people say things like, you know, after they go through some type of tragedy or a big challenge or failure like that, that, uh, you know, I learned so much from it. I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I'm glad I did because that's, you know, I gained so much insight and knowledge from it. You know, are there any big trends that you're following or, or tracking today in talent development that you think are changing how people might be working in the future? Yeah, so I, I mean, I do think that the the notion of augmented reality more so than virtual reality 
And these ideas of chatbots are, are two really big things that could help for talent development. Is So when we think about chatbots first, is we know that a common issue is search, right? Where can I find this? Well, imagine that you, know, you just had a, a quick search bot that could pop up at our chatbot and could say, Hey, look, what do you need from Texas Health Resources University today? Oh, I want to create a leadership development plan. Ah, perfect. And it can walk you through that in a way that could automate some of the services that are provided. Again, not some of the expertise because we still need to use that to create the, the chat. And we still need people to be able to support that on the back end. But just in terms of how you deliver the service and how you can make it easier, those things are, are the way of the future. And you could use it for anything. Hey, I'm trying to find my annual compliance training. Oh, okay, what's your role? Boom. Okay, what do you need? Boom. Have that pull through the data. Those things are no-brainers, right? And those are ways, again, to improve service. As it relates to augmented reality, I think the ability to have not just a, a simulated experience, but one in which it can overlay a real experience, right? So if you want to practice having a conversation, that you can do that, but then to have information through augmented reality that could pop up at the time. And so there's a really, a really simple way of explaining this is, and I'll give you, this is overly simplifying it is, the Joint Commission comes through and, into Texas Health and they want to know that people know where to go to their, how, how to find their fire extinguishers and all that. Well, wouldn't it be pretty cool to have an augmented reality app that you could pull up and then you could open it up and say fire extinguishers and it can guide you from your current location to where you needed where you need to go. And then when you get there, you know, put your phone over it, it sees it, and up pops the how to use it just in case. Well, now you don't have to spend all this time going through this training up front, but through this experience and in the moment, you're able to capture it. It's probably a little more difficult as it comes to management stuff. But you can see a, a time in the future where, hey, look, maybe every employee, every leader has Google Glass kind of things on. And if you're in a conversation that's going south, it reads people's facial expressions and can provide that stuff to you and give you pointers in the moment of things you may want to say to diffuse the conversation or things you may want to say to you know, check in on this. Are you feeling okay? Those kind of things. There's a, a really good article that one of our presidents sent over. It's, I think it was from the Wall Street Journal. Mm. Or, or maybe in New York or something about the robots that manage the managers. And it's really about these notifications and things that pop up. But I think having it overlay real time so that you know and you can augment your own reality, it provides a better, a better learning opportunity. Because again, even though these things will have notifications, the manager is still going to have to do something. right? So they're still going to have to say, Hey, I, I hope you're feeling okay after this tough conversation. Or, you know, this is just a one-time thing or whatever it may be. It still has to be executed on, even though we can provide all of these different things. And, and that execution can't go away. It's supporting them in their execution that will be helpful. Yeah, such future-looking stuff. And, and all of that is coming. And the robots that manage the, the managers, uh, I like that. And of course, uh, if you're a good manager, you connect with people, you have a better chance of robots not taking your job. Um, but if you're interested in finding out whether a robot will take your job, there's a there's a website I discovered and posted about on LinkedIn a while back called WillRobotsTakeMyJob.com, and you can actually put in your job title, and it'll tell you the percentage chance that robots will take your job in the future. Wow! But uh, so many of those things are coming, being tested. Like you said, Google Glass. I think consumers have spoken and said 
it's creepy. We don't want that. But there's definitely different versions of it that are still being developed that are being used in different professions, healthcare being a big one uh, where it's useful. And we're going to see more of that stuff uh, in the future. Going more old school, Daniel, is there a book that has made a big impact on you or that you often recommend to others? Uh, one of my favorite authors, and it's really two, two series. One is um, Malcolm Gladwell. So anything by Malcolm Gladwell, but I really like is more of an anthology. What the dog, I think it's what the dog saw as one. It's just some of his shorter pieces that he's written, but anything by him, David and Goliath, one of the more recent ones was, was really good. And what I appreciate about, about his perspective and even the, you know, what's his name? Stephen Levitt. And, um, the other guy that wrote for, uh, Freakonomics. Yeah. Yeah. That I appreciate their perspective and that they look at a topic and then they work through the topic in such a way that what you might think is conventional wisdom is not necessarily the truth. And it forces you to put on your hat in terms of lateral thinking. I, like, for example, you, you mentioned um, uh, up front about, you know, I, I went to Stanford as one of the, it's a great piece, I think, in David and Goliath where he's questioning the value of going to Harvard versus a smaller um, university and going through the benefits of it. And, you know, while there may be a brand benefit of going to a brand name school, there are other things that might not be such a benefit in terms of morale or, you know, the self-esteem, things like that, that Stanford was a great place. So don't get me wrong. And there was probably just Harvard, but um, that there's some things that are counterintuitive um, that you need to think through. And that kind of lateral thinking helps you really think through other types of processes. So I think if you, you know, if you can only read and then listen to them on their podcast, I think most people would just think totally differently. Oh, yeah. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I've read most of his books. Um, Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner with Freakonomics. Uh, I've read their stuff and used to listen to their podcast all the time uh, because it's always just a different way of thinking about things. And if you like Malcolm Gladwell, he also has a really great podcast called Revisionist History, where he looks at the other side of things as well, which I've listened to. And it's just uh, some, some fascinating stuff. Last question for you, Daniel, for anybody listening who is in talent development, looking for ways to accelerate their careers and move up like you have, uh, what's one more piece of advice you would give them? You know, the, what I always tell my, my wife is, uh, hey, look, you got to show up, work hard, and figure out how to work with other people. And I think that's, that's really it, is show up, you put in the work, and then you figure out the right people that you need to work with. Uh, because you know, if, if you're trying to solve a problem, you want to make sure that you're solving the right problem. Right? And I think that's the, the thing. Is solving a problem is one thing, but solving a right, the right problem is something else. And so that's key in thinking through... Well, am I solving the right problem? And is my solution going to help advance the problem? So it involves asking a lot of questions, making sure you're understanding, coming into any situation as a learner, right? Saying, well, tell me more about that. I'm trying to understand, is it because of this or this? And through that process, you can provide a lot of value to people. And in the end, you may not do anything, but you become a valued partner. And as soon as you do that, people come to you. And that that is probably the fastest way to grow your your career is if people think of you as a person that can solve problems for you, whether or not you do anything. Yeah, you solve the right problems, you become known for solving problems, adding value, then more and more people, you become more in demand as someone that is 
someone that can solve problems, add value, you know, bring people together. If you're a connector, whatever it is, like you said, I, I like that. And I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing in my own career. So thank you for that advice. And thank you, Daniel, for coming on and sharing all of your experience, your wisdom, your advice, some of the things you've been doing at Texas Health. Uh, I think it's really impressive the things you've done so far. I know you have a lot more to go and wish you the best of luck and want to thank you again for coming on the Talent Development Hot Seat. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to chat with you again in the future, I'm sure. Sounds good. All right, take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.